Welcome back to the fourth episode of Sustainalytics Sustainable Finance Solutions Podcast, a monthly roundup of the latest transactions and developments in the sustainable finance space globally. In each episode, we take you through some of the latest news that caught our eye, noteworthy transactions that has hit the market, and cap off with discussing the regulatory and regional updates that, and what it means for future deals and activity. We may cover quite a lot in this short 20 minutes, but we hope that this roundup is the curated shortlist worth tuning into for a download on what's happening globally in the sustainable finance space, and it may just spark some ideas for future deals. This episode is hosted by Nick and Cheryl, who lead the sales effort in Asia-Pacific. As usual, we kick off this month's episode with a quick roundup on sustainable finance news that caught our eye. Thanks, Cheryl. So the first article that really jumped out this month was some news concerning ourselves, actually. So there was the news that Morningstar, who currently owned 40% of Sustainalytics, announced its intention to acquire the remaining 60%. So we see that as a really positive development for both parties, uh, and we look forward to seeing how that develops and evolves over time. That's right. Morningstar and Sustainalytics have a long working relationship for those who don't know, um, which started sometime back in 2013. So after a five-year relationship uh, collaborating on the first ever sustainability ratings for Google Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, Morningstar took a 40% stake in Sustainalytics back in 2017. With this acquisition, we see an enhanced ability to create more innovative products and solutions in the future. Thanks. And the other notable developments over the month were coronavirus and also social bonds. So lots of social uh, issuances happening, lots of governments going to market and, and issuing bonds, maybe in some cases uh, unlabeled, but it's really good to see overall the S of the ESG getting really focused upon uh, as, uh, as many governments and some corporates look uh, to issue to uh, help combat the, uh, the coronavirus and its impacts at the moment. Um, Sustainalytics over the month released a blog in relation to social uh, bonds as connected to uh, a coronavirus uh, response. So we'd encourage our listeners to have a look at that and really picking up the themes and potential activities and use of proceeds in the area of healthcare, things like healthcare services, uh, supplies and equipment, pharmaceuticals, health insurance, potentially waiving or cost sharing uh, the treatment related to coronavirus. And then also the SME side or impact on SMEs is and employment. Uh, and also other impacts on, on food banks and social services and those sorts of things. So um, some really interesting developments and look forward to seeing that evolving over time. Uh, Cheryl, this month we thought we would do something a little bit different, actually, and we've got a quick uh, interview with uh, Lily A. Hock, who's one of our product managers based in Amsterdam, and we ask her a few interesting questions and things that we've been receiving a lot related to social bonds and coronavirus. As Nick mentioned, indeed, we do get a lot of inquiries related to COVID-19 bonds. And I would like to focus here on the three most frequent inquiries that we get. The first one is related to whether an update of the framework and the SPO is necessary if an issuer wants to issue a COVID-19 bond. In general, if you have an existing framework and that covers all the activities that you want to finance with your COVID-19 bonds, then there is no need for you to do an update. Uh, you can just go ahead, use your existing framework and the respective SPO. If you have an existing framework and some of uh, the activities are not covered in there that you intend to finance, then that indeed requires a framework update. Maybe to mention here, 
So if you have this existing framework and it's fine and you have an SPO, Sustainalytics SPO are valid for all bonds issued under that respective framework. So for you, there is, uh, there is no need to connect to us. Second question that I would like to speak to is about target population. So we often still get the question, do I need to define a target population if I'm issuing a COVID-19 bond, given that a lot of the measures actually speak to the general public? And Sustainalytics SPO in general assess the alignment of a bond with the social bond principles, where it is recommended that a target population is identified. You may have also seen ICMAS communication and guidance around COVID-19, where they also clearly say that it's possible that measures financed in COVID bonds do speak to the general public. However, that connection should still be made. So how is the activity that I'm financing with my COVID-19 bond benefiting the general public? The third question that I would like to focus on is around financing companies Um, that have been extremely hard hit by the crisis. Overall, SME financing or microfinancing, microenterprise financing, are well-established social categories, especially in the COVID crisis. It has been acknowledged that these are uh, companies who have been disproportionately hard hit. So there's not really a lot of problem around doing that. Uh, if you want to finance a company that is uh, bigger, that is beyond an SME and may also be involved in activities that are not considered green or social, then that is something we look at at a case-by-case basis. Something to also keep in consideration here is whether that company is involved in any activities uh, that we typically find on the exclusion list of responsible investors, such as tobacco. So that is something for you to take into consideration there. Thanks, Lily. Also, because of the coronavirus, it's no surprise that a lot of economic activity and markets have slowed or been sidelined. General items Nick and I have noticed over the past months was that there were lots of articles and headlines that seemed to paint the same sentiment and picture. A short but punchy piece from Politico titled Follow That Green Money. Um, Some quotable quotes include, if you're a large firm that can't survive the pandemic, how can you survive climate change, says S&P Global's Jennifer Laidlaw, uh, who labels the current oil price crash as and pandemic as conditions that almost mirror a climate stress test. So this pandemic is nothing short of, um, of a resilience test, if not, um, argues Gordon Power, who is the chief executive at Earth Capital. Any interesting things you've seen? Yeah, I guess the next article is really echoing some of those points, Cheryl. So uh, there was a great blog from a BNP and a global head of sustainability looking at looking at really this whole topic of, of resilience uh, for investors. So overall, I think uh, there's going to be a lot more focus from investors on resilience and also for companies in terms of uh, many aspects of resilience as well. So yeah, maybe it is the first real climate uh, shock or climate semi-related shock that we're seeing in the market. So uh, resilience is definitely going to be a key theme going forward. And on the topic of policymakers and their bailouts, Truthout has this article titled Big Oil Bailout would be the opposite of the Green New Deal we need. Discusses the risk of how a big oil bailout by the US government and Fed could 
play out given the president's vocal support for oil and gas, as well as the Federal Reserve being one of the few central banks in the world that has decided not to participate in the network for greening the financial system. Lawmakers and advocacy groups alike have been sounding the alarm on the dangers of a coming big oil bailout. Imagine billions going to the fossil fuel industry would be a repeat of this pandemic mistake with the slow motion train wreck that we see, which is the ongoing climate crisis. Yeah, sobering thoughts indeed on that one, uh, Cheryl. And just a couple of other points or themes that we've really noticed over the month would be, um, will sustainable bonds really prove their mettle uh, themselves at, uh, at the moment in the current climate in terms of this whole focus on resilience and a really volatile market? I think they will, but let's wait for the dust to settle on the market and how they've uh, performed versus some of the other more vanilla instruments uh, in, the, in the market. The other uh, theme that's, that's had a lot of articles and conversation about over the month was whether COVID will derail sustainability momentum. And I think it'll actually have the opposite effect. In the short term, uh, there will be some, uh, obviously, factors and companies focusing on on more survival and liquidity type measures. But hopefully, uh, after that period passes, much more focus on the long term, much more focus on resilience and really this S uh, in the ES and and G and uh, yeah, lots of momentum to, uh, to come. Our friends at the Climate Bond Initiative have been doing a phenomenal job hosting webinars and launching reports. So CBI is a great resource and Nick and I are fans. We recommend checking out their website as well as subscribing through their blog. But just sharing quickly on four reports they launched uh, in the last few months as well as the recorded webinars which is available online. So first up is the CBI monthly update for the month of March. So the COVID-19 outbreak has had a visible impact on all financial markets including the debt capital markets as well as the green bond segment. Overall, 2020 issuance is now at USD 33.9 billion, mainly coming from Europe, with North America ranking second and Asia Pacific third. As expected for each region, there was a clear decline um, recorded compared to the last year's Q1 volumes. This month, the major share issuance came from Asia Pacific, with an equivalent of USD 1.7 billion, making up 61% of total March volumes. There was no green sovereign issuance that took place in March. Um, and the main issuer types were government-backed entities as well as non-financial corporates. Okay, that's good to hear, Cheryl, in terms of the ongoing percentage of uh, APAC deals in the overall global global market. The second report we looked at from CBI over the month was the ASEAN report, and this builds on the first ASEAN report which CBI released last year. And the really key headline for me was just the growth in the market. So. Uh, the whole market of green finance in ASEAN countries growing to 7.8 billion US at the end of 2019, up from 4.1 billion in 2018, and lots of uh, lots of different sectors, buildings and energy sectors seeming to still dominate, and the ongoing Asian uh, ASEAN issuance still being a relatively small part of the overall global uh, total, but showing very positive growth. Banks, the key issue is there, uh, and also lots of local. Uh, currency um, or bonds getting issued in local currency. So really good to see more and more uh, pools of liquidity being accessed there. In the Treasurer Survey report, CBI surveyed 86 treasurers from a variety of institutions. 
Uh, lots of insights as to why corporates issue green bonds, but reputational benefits as well as market signal were cited as the main reasons. While there were costs associated with implementing these adjustments, it appears that respondents believe them to be justified as they kind of broaden investor base, they would strengthen internal recognition, they enhance reputation and visibility, and the gains very often compensated for the effort. So I might just rattle off some statistics here from the study. 98% of respondents said that their green bond attracted new investors. 91% of respondents said a green bond facilitated more engagement with investors, so that's really good to hear. Um, 88% said they plan to issue more green bonds. And 48% of the respondents said that the cost of funding green bonds was similar to that of vanilla equivalents. So this is definitely a good report to share with a corporate that is thinking of making that first step into issuing green bonds. Okay, and another great report that CBI released was the pricing update that they do for green bonds, which gets released on a periodic uh, basis uh, about every uh, every six months. And without going into too much detail, Cheryl, about the specific numbers in that, it still continues to show a bit of um, tightening or spread compression for the uh, the green instruments, generally at least a couple of basis points uh, tighter than uh, than the uh, the vanilla uh, vanilla bonds, and on an average over subscription basis of around 2.8 uh, times versus around two times for vanilla. Differing slightly for Euro and US, uh, but some really positive uh, developments there on the pricing side, which hopefully gets exacerbated further in a positive way. Uh, but we'll, we'll see once the market comes down a bit on, the, on that. And the, the last point we wanted to note on the Climate Bonds Initiative was the long-awaited shipping criteria, uh, which has been released uh, for public consultation. That is definitely an excellent, uh, an excellent read. And for those interested in, in green bonds and green financings related to shipping, it's a really uh, robust framework and, and view um, on how to potentially structure those. So it'll be quite interesting to see what feedback they get and how that develops, uh, but a very good read. Now let's move on to the next segment of the show. Any interesting headline transactions that caught your eye, Nick? Yeah, lots and lots of news and, and various frameworks being released and uh, in many cases bonds being done over the month of uh, April as well, Cheryl. So a couple of issuers coming back to market, mainly for renewables, Avangrid, EON, uh, Brookfield, um, Anglican Water also, uh, also did something. Lease plan that we worked on as a car as a service business for batteries and EVs. SNCF, a rail operator, um, uh, looking at some maintenance and upgrading of their network, uh, in addition to the 100-year green bond they did last year. A couple of other interesting ones, kind of more technology-related. Um, this month was Analog uh, Semiconductors and then NXP, uh, also a semiconductor company that, uh, that looked at something uh, that has a, a mixture of proceeds and production technologies and processes wireless battery sensors, R&D, uh, eco-efficient products, and so lots, of, lots of things really worth uh, looking at there. Swisscom, another telco, so went to market with um, a bunch of uh, use of proceeds. Uh, and also uh, Agrotech, which is related to uh, uh, poultry and agri doing some green buildings that specialised in their industry. So lots of varied issuance over the month and some, some uh, renewable energy deals as, uh, as well. And what about the green loan space, Cheryl? Anything that uh, you noted over the month? Over in the green loan space, Capital Land has secured two green loans to catalyze the greening of its global portfolio by 2030, a Singapore 150 million uh, four-year green loan from DBS, as well as a Sing dollar 250 million three-year multi-currency green loan from HSBC. Over in Japan, green ninja loans take hold. Uh, ninja loans, for those who are not familiar, are syndicated 
loans in Japan for overseas borrowers. While this idea of ninja loans is not new, the ones carrying the green tag are more of a recent phenomenon thanks to the strong support from Japan Bank for International Cooperation, the country's export credit agency. So with huge liquidity in Japan and low pricing, this is uh, an excellent cross-sector of themes. And green ninja loans are proving popular with lenders and borrowers alike because uh, Regional Japanese banks pile into higher-yielding products, and borrowers from far afield lap on the longer-term liquidity. Okay, and social bonds over the month, apart from the types of things we mentioned before related to coronavirus, Cheryl? Yeah, nothing particularly different uh, to highlight, just that Environmental Finance put out a good summary article titled What Makes a Good Coronavirus Bond? If you want an overview of coronavirus bonds issued to date. Okay. And then on transition, the normal segment we have each uh, each podcast, just a couple of things to mention this month. Um, two really good reports, well worth reading. The first one was the Climate Works uh, report, and that's an organisation in Australia talking about the future solutions and decarbonisation pathways for uh, the Australian market and an excellent uh, read and very well uh, put together. The next one was from Japan, actually, some draft transition principles from METI or METI. Uh, which looked at issues in transition such as whole of life cycle analysis, value chains, um, making sure that the pathway for a particular industry was robust, scientifically backed, uh, making sure the companies are using best available technology, uh, and really the having clear or uh, very clear commitments at the corporate level. Um, so I guess that's on the on the back of CBI and ICMA having working groups and looking to release transition type principles, hopefully over. Over the course of this year, the EU taxonomy being a great uh, reference for for transition and also sustainalytics. We've been very uh, active and working very hard to release our our principles for for certain sectors in the market and look forward to working with issuers and banks on uh, on those. So building on the transition theme, anything that you've noticed for sustainability link loans over the month, Cheryl? And I did see that APLMA and the LMA came out with some additional guidance on both green loans and sustainability link loans, actually. Yeah, that's right. So not too many SLLs this month, but uh, Dur AG, uh, which is a global mechanical and plant engineering firm, they successfully issued another sustainability-oriented Shuqin loan to the tune of Euros $115 million. This is their second sustainability Shuqin loan after the Euro $200 million issued last year with the interest rate linked to Dur Group's uh, sustainability rating. Over in Canada, Maple Leaf Foods recently announced that they had been the world's first major carbon-neutral food company and one of the three animal protein companies in the world to set the globally respected science-based targets for emissions reduction. So some very aggressive and uh, positive commitments announced by Maple Leaf Foods, but they also secured a sustainability-linked terms for their credit facilities, signing an amendment to its existing $2 billion of credit facilities, which includes financing terms that reduce the interest rate on their lending facilities as key sustainability targets are met. Back in Asia, Link REIT is back in action with DBS following their convertible green bond last year, de- debuting with their maiden sustainability linked loan. So they worked with Sustainalytics on its convertible green bond last year, which was very well received. There was the lowest coupon rate achieved by an Asian REIT over the past five years. So it's very notable to see that corporates have been that have issued green continue to do so and bankers should see the opportunity to continue pitching to them in green. 
Nick, can you share any of the interesting structured products you've seen in the market lately? Yeah, absolutely. Look, every month there continues to be either green products being launched or more green products and also sustainability linked products. So just a couple to mention, Deutsche worked on a offshore wind farm and did some hedging linked uh, linked to that. Sustainable supply chain keeps coming up as, as a theme and I guess exacerbated uh, in the current market with COVID and impacts to uh, to suppliers and sustainability. We continue to work hard in terms of that sector and we'll definitely focus on that in future episodes. Uh, and the other one to mention that got a lot of press over the months was the pandemic bond uh, issued by the World Bank a few years ago. And this really picks up the theme of the more structured type products in the green and sustainable uh, space, such as Generali's green ILS or insurance link security announced or released earlier earlier this year. So the pandemic bonds being a contingent instrument that gets triggered depending on a certain sequence uh, or event uh, happening. So hopefully we'll still see a number of innovative and interesting uh, risk transfer instruments going forward in the uh, in the market. So we also just wanted to highlight a couple of regulatory changes and really look at some of the latest developments that's been happening in uh, Europe. So let's refer to our European-based colleagues for a quick snapshot. Thanks, Nick. This is Molly Stern speaking from the Sustainable Finance Solutions team based in Europe. So following on from Enrico's update last episode on the EU taxonomy changes, there has been another exciting regulatory announcement from the European Commission to update you on. On the 8th of April, the EU launched its consultation on the renewed sustainable finance strategy. This consultation is really an opportunity for all Europeans, companies, civil society organisations and public authorities to contribute to the EU's sustainable finance agenda and also to the economic recovery in a post-COVID-19 world. But maybe it is helpful, before I go into any more detail, if we take a step back and look at how the EU has got to this stage, and why it has chosen to update its Sustainable Finance Action Plan. So back in March 2018, the EU released its Action Plan on Financing Sustainable Growth, which included 10 main action points. This really laid down the foundations for channeling private capital towards sustainable investments. But fast forward to present day, in 2020, there is a consensus that the financial system as a whole is not yet transitioning fast enough and substantial progress needs to be made to ensure that the financial sector genuinely supports businesses transitioning, as well as further supporting businesses that are already sustainable. Compounding on this is the critical need to strengthen the sustainability and resilience of our societies and ways in which our economies function, highlighted only more by the devastating COVID-19 pandemic. This renewed sustainable finance strategy is a response to this, a refocusing as such, to ensure that the EU remains on track and efforts are stepped up. The renewed sustainable finance strategy will build on the 2018 action plan by focusing on three key areas. Firstly, by creating a strong basis to enable sustainable investment through creating a framework with appropriate tools and structures. Secondly, providing increased opportunities for citizens, financial institutions and corporations alike to have a positive impact on sustainability. And lastly, to fully manage and integrate climate and environmental risks into the financial system, while of course ensuring social risks are taken into account where relevant. But back to the consultation. The aim of this is really to collect as many of his views as possible to feed into the Commission's work to help mobilise private investment into sustainable projects. In terms of timelines, the Commission's aim is to adopt the renewed sustainable finance strategy in the second half of 2020. The consultation is open online with a link in the podcast notes below until the 15th of July. 
and is comprised of 102 questions considering a great number of subjects and issues in the field of sustainable finance. I really urge you to go and have your say on what is a key piece of regulatory work which will arguably be helping to shape the economy going forward. It really gives the chance to everyone to be heard and have their opinion on this complex, fast-changing topic and the chance to also broaden and deepen the current Sustainable Finance Action Plan. But that's all from me. Thanks for having me on the podcast and back to you, Cheryl. All right, folks, that's all about the time we have for this episode. Links to the articles and reports mentioned in this episode can be found on our website. Do also follow us on our LinkedIn and Twitter and send any questions or feedback our way. Thanks again for tuning in. Till next time.